Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Lane, one of the hosts of the channel. In her new book, Fat, Pretty, and Soon to be Old, A Makeover for Self and Society, sociologist and storyteller Kimberly Dark considers what it means to look a certain way. Integrating memoir with cultural critique, Dark describes her experience navigating the world as a fat, queer, white-privileged, gender-conforming, eventually disabled, and inevitably aging, quote, girl with a pretty face. Her essays take on self-improvement, self-acceptance, sexual attraction, language, aging, queer visibility, fashion, family, femininity, feminism, yoga culture, airplane seats, and the vilifying of fatness in the name of good health, among other compelling topics. Along the way, Dark edges readers toward a deeper understanding of how privileged and stigmatized appearances function in everyday life and how the architecture of the social world constrains us all. Today, I'm talking with Professor Kimberly Dark about her 2019 book, Fat, Pretty, and Soon to be Old, A Makeover for Self and Society, published by AK Press. Dr. Dark, welcome to the show. Hello. So before we talk about your book, um, would you be able to tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Uh, Well, sure. Um, I have been writing essays and doing storytelling performances for almost 25 years. Um, This came about because I was interested in how folks publicly consume and actually do something with um, sociological and social science knowledge and information. I'm actually not a PhD. I I gave up the um, pursuit because I thought there were some things wrong with the way that we, um, uh, you know, structure higher education. I do have a master's degree, and uh, so I'm able to teach. But public scholarship was always going to be my route. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I really was upset about the idea that we're talking about all of these really vital topics that should be um, you know, our research should be changing the course of culture, but uh, nobody cares if we're dull out there in the world. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, uh, it's it's like there were pop psychologists all over talk shows, uh, you know, when I started thinking this through. And I thought, well, wait, where are the pop sociologists? Uh, so that that became my interest long ago. Nice. And well, and how did you come to write this particular book? Well, so this book is actually structured in the way that a lot of my storytelling performances have been structured for the last 25 years. Um, Part of what I am interested in is using humor and intimacy and, um, you know, basically connecting through storytelling in order to... um, help folks show how we are creating the culture, even as it creates us, Um, that we are literally influenced by culture every day, but we are also in a reciprocal arrangement. You know, we are creating culture every day. And so 
the way that we talk and behave matters. Um, the way that we come to see broader social structures matters. And uh, so this book, um, you know, this is, this is my third book, but it's really the first one that is uh, following the, you know, the, the broader arc of my, my work in general. So as you say earlier, this isn't a traditional scholarly book. And what made you decide that for this book in particular, you wanted to write um, a different kind of book than one might expect from a sociology professor? Yeah, you know, I think that this book um, is reflective of the work that I've been doing, uh, writing personal essays and um, essays that are performed. Um, It's possible to look at this as a scholarly book if we talk about it as autoethnography. And that's the niche that I have um, been filling in sociology for years. Um, The idea that I am writing about the self in order to understand the culture. And, um, and, and so what that does is that it yields a, it yields a book that is uh, accessible and because it's based in storytelling, you know, that the, the essays that I write are using intimacy and um, humor um, sometimes tragedy to uh, engage a reader, um, but then also offering the kind of analysis that um, comes through my training as a sociologist and my experiences as a social researcher. And I think, you know, for a long time, um, people told me, well, this is, you know, neither fish nor fowl, right? Like it, it was um, difficult to get a book like this published for many years. But the fact is, this is what most people are doing all the time. It's not like we separate parts of ourselves out in order to just tell a story. So for me, it is an organic storytelling form to incorporate um, very intimate details about my personal life into a social analysis. So I think that... um, that that's how it, it comes about, but it is definitely an established form of autoethnography. Definitely. Well, and in, in terms of how the book came about, how did it actually come together? You know, tell us about your writing process. How do you write and where do you tend to do your writing? Um, you know, I, these kind of essays are often written uh, one at a time and then assembled into a collection later. So it's not like I sat down to write this book and, um, you know, wrote it start to finish. So uh, the essays are collected over the years, but also, um, you know, I filled in some gaps where I thought that certain themes needed to be addressed in this this broader topic of um, intersections of appearance and identity. Uh, so yeah, I, I write whenever whenever the mood strikes me, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I write at home primarily. Uh, I also, um, you know, write in a notebook. And then once I come to the end of a notebook, I, um, you know, go back and read through and pull out themes that I want to develop into essays. Um, so sometimes, uh, you know, writing comes from an interaction in the social world. Um, sometimes it comes from something I've read, a scholarly article that I've read where I think, oh, wow, I think I have a way to talk about that um, embedded in a story because, you know, I have an experience that related to it. So it happens in those various ways. Nice. 
Well, let's turn to the book itself now. I mean, it's a very personal book and it's one closely attuned to issues of intersectionality. And, you know, you write that, and, and I'll quote you here, as a woman who is fat, pretty, queer, and aging, among other things, I have a perspective that might help us reach critical mass as we discuss social change. Can you tell us what you mean by that and what sort of social change you're, you're thinking of? Yeah. So, you know, from the perspective of, I mean, if we just go, if we just go broad here for a moment, from a phenomenological perspective, right, if we're thinking about social interactionism, then we are literally creating culture every day of our lives. Um, you know, we are involved in the performative creation of concepts like beauty and aging and queerness, you know, that th those things are, are not, you know, there's not stable definitions. And of course, they shift based on um, you know, intersections of things like social class or race um, or disability, right? Any of these kinds of things. So, so, so for me, part of how it is possible to really get at and understand and tease out those intersections is through storytelling, but not just storytelling where there's like, um, you know, a traditional arc to a story where it's enjoying to hear, but also where there is something being modeled about how to intervene in the culture that is in order to create the culture that could be. And for me, the culture that could be is one where we have inherent human dignity, regardless of our appearance and our identities, and regardless of how those things change over time. And that's a tall order, actually, right? Because we live in a culture that is based on power and hierarchy to a great extent. And, you know, one might argue that all human cultures are based there. But it is certainly not true that all human cultures have the kinds of inequities that we have in the United States. I mean, the, um, you know, financial and social class inequities are, uh, you know, are, are, are well documented beginning to that to that, uh, analysis. So, so I am actually interested in people being able to read and go like, Oh, Oh, I am a social creator. And wow, that story was interesting. And I relate it in these ways to my life. And what if I spoke up or did something differently the next time that X occurs? Yeah, well, one of the first topics you tackle is America's obsession with self-improvement. And, and in your conversations around that, I really do like how you balance it's pragmatic without ever feeling cynical. Mm -hmm. So for example, you endorse the savvy application of social knowledge. As you say, put on some makeup if it's going to help you be heard in the job interview. But you also warn against this daily quest for privilege, especially relative to others, that leaves existing power structures unchecked. So yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how we navigate um, those two different approaches to unequal hierarchies. Yeah. Well, it's a day by day thing, isn't it? It's, it's tricky because I am interested in, um, in, in more people developing greater consciousness about how hierarchy works and how privilege works. Um, that, 
you, you don't have to be able to see it and feel it in your everyday life to know it's there because, uh, you know, there's, there's data <laughs> that shows that, um, yes, it, it's absolutely not your imagination. It is easier for a woman to be seen as reputable and successful and, um, worth listening to if she's wearing makeup, a certain kind of makeup, to be clear, not clown makeup, not, um, you know, makeup that is appropriate for whatever her profession is. And, um, and so, so this is, you know, this is a well-known and established thing. Like I, I don't think it's worthwhile to ignore that these, um, you know, that these things exist, but look, if we are just doing nothing, but trying to learn about social privilege so that we can get as much as possible, then I think that we're not really, um, you know, we're, we're not really taking a compassionate approach to the fact that when someone wins, someone loses in that kind of hierarchy. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I wear makeup for instance, on stage, uh, I wear makeup if I am, uh, in, in a large group in front of a large group of people so that my face can be more easily seen. Uh, but I don't put it on every day because I don't want to encourage, um, the way that the culture interacts with women, especially women, my age, um, as, invisible. I want to go ahead and be as visible as I can and be as vibrant as I can um, in the body I have with the face that I have. I also enjoy sometimes I particularly enjoy lipstick and nail polish, right? So I do wear those things. So I think that we're always in a negotiation with ourselves about things like appearance and identity. You know, adornment is has a, you know, color and texture have inherent pleasures in them. I don't want to let that go either. Um, so this is not, there's not like one rule. Uh, you know, it's a matter of navigating. Um, you know, if I have privilege already in a certain arena, for instance, then maybe that's the one to try to experiment with, uh, being less acceptable in certain ways that invite more diversity. Now, you also write, um, and, and, and I'll just ask forgiveness in advance here. Um, I find that I am writing longer questions for you than I maybe usually do. I try to make sure my interviewee is doing most of the talking. But in this case, I really want listeners to get a, a little bit of a sense of what's in the book, right? Not just what the book's about, but what's in there for the reader to come and discover. And so... So again, so I'm going to quote you a little bit more than I might otherwise. So forgive me for that. <laughs> but you write about your childhood experiences of dieting and that you were reducing your, your daily intake to 500 calories or fewer and being praised for your shrinking size. And I was really taken by how you remember responding to such praise. So when people told you, you looked great, you'd reply, I haven't eaten in 43 days or, well, I'm dying. But people just didn't hear you even though you were telling them the truth, right? They didn't hear you because it seems to me they couldn't fathom that weight loss, especially on a, a girl with a pretty face, might be a sign of a serious problem and not of some sort of personal progress or discipline, right? So how do you understand those interactions now as you look back at them with the benefit of hindsight? Well, you know, the first thing I want to point out is that these interactions are identical now to when they were, the, what they were, you know, for, for me, um, those stories were taking place 40 plus years ago. So I, I want to be, I mean, 
I think that this is striking. And what I'm talking about is that if an individual, a woman, a girl in particular, does not look emaciated, that is, she has not become socially unacceptable looking because she is too thin. If that's the case, we rarely see weight loss as a problem, even though it might point to starvation, it might point to eating disorders or depression or, um, you know, thoughts of suicide. We don't see that as a problem. And because, of course, the quest to look right is more important than almost anything else, right? So as a fat kid, I grew up with this thing about, well, you know, you're going to have to do something about your weight. Now, the, the thing is, that's horrifying to make that the central focus of a child's life. It's also compassionate if you're looking at it from the perspective of, I know your life's going to be harder if you don't lose some weight. Um, so, you know, so there's a, there's a tricky thing. And this is literally still happening today all over the United States. There are structural supports for um, this. You know, there are, um, you know, weight loss is this multi-billion dollar industry that is targeting children younger and younger, even though there's evidence that weight loss, caloric deprivation causes eventual weight gain, even, you know, right, there's a 5% success rate to, to you know, for weight loss programs um, in the long term. We are still involved in a cultural obsession that says it doesn't matter if you're dying as long as you figure out how to look right. And so this is how I understand this, you know, years later as a, as a, you know, social scientist. Um, but at the time, and I think this is why it is useful to embed um, social theories and research in personal storytelling is, you know, at the time, those, those experiences are like, you know, this is how children learn what their culture expects of them. And what the culture expects of girls is that you have a conforming appearance, or you're pretty much worthless. Yeah, it's interesting. It's making me flash back to undergraduate days. I went to a school with a really high incidence of eating disorders among and exercise disorders among um, the female undergraduates. And I remember that the real focus of the counseling center on campus was how to diet safely. Uh-huh. Right. It, was, it wasn't anything. It was so problematic that even as a, a relatively sort of inexperienced, not having read around this topic at all, even I, something's something's wrong there right? That is not the solution to the problem that these girls are coming to you with. Um, but that was seen as, as the right way to handle the situation. Yes. Let's just exercise more reasonably and, and um, eat a little safer or diet a little safer, lose weight more safely. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's a great example. You know, there are just now in the last, literally last five years, starting to be um, research studies that focus on anorexia, anorectic behavior in higher weight individuals. And I was one of those, right? Like I never did look um, emaciated. I never became what, you know, what people thought of as thin, right? Like I think my smallest size ever was a size 12. And that was after years of starvation. And so the, the thing is, I understand that now. 
as being a, a miraculous, amazing thing, right? My body is an amazing thing that it, it metabolized that behavior. It took that behavior of starvation and still allowed me to survive. And, um, that's, that's beautiful, right? And a lot of people are not as lucky. They don't survive that kind of behavior. Um, but, you know, I think we're so invisible was this experience that it's just in the last few years that eating disorder researchers are starting to um, focus the tiniest bit of attention on higher weight anorectic behavior. Now, well, in a, it's a related topic, but a different one. You also write about your mother in this book and, and you praise her strength. And you also describe how fixated she was with your weight and appearance, even long after you had come to love yourself and how you look and to think about the body, your body in the way you've just described. And she also accused you when, when you were still a child of trying to seduce her husband, the, the husband who was in fact sexually abusing you at the time. And, and I don't have a question here so much as, as admiration for your willingness in your writing um, and in, your, in yourself to accept her complexity as a person also navigating cultural hierarchies of gender and beauty, and also um, the complexity of, of your relationship with her and hers to you. Thanks. Thanks. I, you know, th this is, these are the critical intersections, right? The critical intersections that I think that we have to somehow um, navigate, you know, and, and especially in the social science literature, this is the stuff that gets left out when, um, you know, when, when people don't dive deep with, uh, personal storytelling. And, um, I, I mean, dare I say it, if, 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 if we're only focused, if we being people who are, um, trained as social researchers, if we are only focused on other people's stories, it's hit or miss whether we're going to find this level of depth and complexity. And I think that we can do it with autoethnography. We can do it there because, um, you know, we all have a life as well. And, and the fact is that my mother's focus on, um, on my appearance and on me as competition when her husband was uh, clearly out of line <laughs> when, you know, being um, not only abusing me, but, uh, you know, when she... She was not wrong when she started feeling that sense of competition, not because I was competing, but because he saw us that way. And um, this, is, this is a big part of how, uh, you know, of the infrastructure of culture, uh, the competition of women, um, the quest to look a certain way in order to get certain rewards. And of course, it plays out in mother-daughter relationships. Um, I, I don't think I'm, I'm glad that you that you see that I s see her as a strong person and as a interesting person, but also as a deeply flawed person because uh, you know that that is that is the kind of complexity that we are all carrying and dealing with. Yeah, another part of the book I found especially compelling was your discussion of how confusing it is for some people when they find themselves sexually attracted to a fat person. 
Right. And, and, and you talk a bit about sort of the emotional labor that is required to sort of help people through this quandary in which they find themselves. And I was wondering what those moments can teach us about the way our culture thinks about sex and attraction. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I, I, I hope there's an element of humor to those stories as well, because, um, because life is ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous that you're navigating um, somebody's feelings about, like when somebody's hot for you, that there's also this whole thing about what, well, but should I be hot for you? I don't think so. I think that, I think that wasn't in the brochure. I think, you know, <laughs> um, so, so yeah. Um, the thing about sex and attraction that I think uh, we still have to figure out and, and learn is, is that, a whole lot of our attraction to others is mitigated by cultural norms and standards. I mean, that doesn't seem like news except for everyone in their individual life wants to claim that their attractions are just inexplicable. They're just ineffable. And of course it's this person and her beautiful soul or this guy is just a certain way or, you know, and it's like, right. Well, but if he was five foot two instead of six foot two, would you feel the same about him? I mean, these are the questions that we need to, um, you know, that we need to, to really look at. And I think it is a, a challenge sometimes. And, and part of what I'm writing to in those stories that deal with sex and attraction is the intersection of the identities fat and pretty. Because let's be clear, <laughs> I think the people that I have found myself romantically involved with who are surprised that they're attracted to a fat person are not acknowledging the fact that they are actually, they've been hooked by the other aspects of my appearance that are socially acceptable. And this is the part that we rarely talk about because first of all, I'm not supposed to talk to you about being pretty. I'm not supposed to admit to being pretty. It sounds vain. It sounds like, you know, you're, you're not supposed to say that about yourself. And if other people say it, you're supposed to point out your flaws, right? This is our social script. But I think we're really missing something if we fail to talk about the literal currency of conformity. And I happen to be an individual who is, um, grossly non-conforming in certain ways. I weigh more than 300 pounds, <laughs> but also very conforming with regard to what we think of as, uh, you know, a pretty face, nice hair, a reasonable fashion sense, right? So these are, these are critical intersections that I think we need to, we need to think more about and also to challenge our own, our own perceptions of what is beautiful. One of the great things I think of, um, you know, I love all of these projects that are happening now, like for instance, the Add a Positivity Project. You know, it's a photo project. Um, Substantia Jones takes pictures of fat people naked doing things that, you know, being part of a couple, doing some yoga, sitting by the pool, you know. The idea is that if we just look at people's bodies, the range of diversity of them, it actually doesn't take long to desensitize the part of us that wants to say, Oh, that, that body is grotesque and that one, that one's beautiful. Right? Like I think that we can disrupt those, um, those social rules more easily than we think. 
Well, and I think actually the next question I want to ask is about an experience you had where there was sort of, I think, an, an expected interaction and then the interaction turned out to be something very different, right? And, and you write about this interesting experience with a seatmate on an airplane. And I wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that essay and also, you know, in connection about the work that larger people are often expected to perform to put others at ease. You know, there's a couple of stories in the book about um, airplane rides, uh, because obviously it's a space where we're, you know, in a compressed <laughs> situation. So these things come up. But are you talking about the one where I am seated next to another fat passenger? Yes, that's the one I was thinking of. Okay. The armrest, and he raises the armrest, and you both get to sort of be in this <laughs> space together. Yes, yes. Um, right. So, yeah, part of the way that that essay opens is with my own acknowledgement that I also have these thoughts sometimes when I see a larger person coming toward me on the airplane, and um, they're going to sit next to me. Oh my goodness. First of all, I want to just be clear. My first thought is, can we both literally fit into this space and one of us not be put off of the airplane? I mean, that's a, um, you know, that's a grave possibility. But in this particular situation, and I'm just going to go ahead and name the airline because it's, um, it's relevant, I think, to, to the story. This was Hawaiian Airlines. Um, and Hawaiian Airlines has just slightly more width to their seats than most U.S. carriers. And I think part of the reason for this is that Hawaiian people tend to be larger people. And um, this guy that sat next to me was a Hawaiian guy. And his orientation to his own size and mine was so different than the standard air passenger that I've mostly experienced. Um, he wanted to put the, the armrest up between us because yeah, yeah, it's going to be easier. Right. And I found myself sitting there thinking, well, guy, you're right. Um, it is, it is going to be easier. And the fact is we are two large people and we're going to be touching in this tiny little space. And so what is it that happens publicly when uh, that that veneer of anonymity is removed, right? Like you're going to touch the person next to you. People are sized. There's no way we're not going to be literally leaning our bodies into each other in an airplane seat. And uh, so, you know, there is emotional labor involved in making this okay because, you know, I do it all the time. I fly often and, uh, you know, I'm often jovial, right? I try to, I try to, be kind about the way I take up space, but also feel entitled to take up space, just like anybody else on the plane. And um, that guy that I was sitting next to in that essay, I really, I really ended up feeling like he was a role model of sorts. That his um, his desire to make us both comfortable went beyond what I would normally do. Now you know, the, the essay talks a little bit about the gendered nature of this, and it could have to do a little bit with male entitlement as well. But it could also have to do with culture and the fact that in Hawaiian culture, influenced as it is by colonization, um, yes, there is fat stigma, but there is also a Hawaiian cultural influence that came before colonization that says, look, fat people are not idiots. 
They're not stupid slobs. That people are respectable participants in society. And that is the overtone, I think, in that story. And one of the reasons that he was able to, uh, you know, just talk openly and be friendly about the fact that, yeah, we're, we're touching. And, you know, and he wasn't creepy in any way, right? So, yeah, that's... Um, that's a that's a story that is that is quite dear to me. I like the stories where I I'm learning something from other people. <laughs> well, and and I really like it makes me think about I just around the same time that I read your book, I read um Ross Gay's book, A Book of Delights mm-hmm. and or Book of Delights, The Book of Delights. And in it he writes almost every day for a year about something that delighted him. And it's interesting. He's also someone who travels a lot on planes. And so many of the little essays that he writes are about sort of delightful moments when he had this unexpected either physical connection or emotional connection with someone in an airplane in this sort of um, just place where you wouldn't expect it. Right. And so your book really put his work to mind as well. That's great. So you also write, speaking of what bodies belong in what places, um, you know, you write about being a large woman in a, in a yoga class, a large yoga instructor, in fact, and how this challenges some people's ideas about what a healthy, fit body is supposed to look like. And I wondered if you could share your thoughts about the way other yoga practitioners read your body. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And there are a few essays about uh, yoga and fitness in the book. Um, there's a couple things happening here. One of them is that uh, where did we ever get this idea that a person had to be a paragon of virtue and completely healthy and completely fit in order to successfully lead other people in a yoga practice? I mean, it's a question worth asking because I think it comes from the idea that people come to any kind of group fitness or group kind of class experience because they see the teacher's body as a attainable um, goal, right? That the teacher got to look that way by doing this thing. And that if I do this thing too, I get to look like the teacher. It's, it's a completely wrong idea of course, right? That, um, you know, the, the majority of yoga teachers, um, I think have, uh, probably arrived into a yoga practice nowadays. I'm talking about nowadays in the United States, right? I'm not talking about worldwide or something. Um, but I think that the majority of them have arrived into what is now become a fitness pursuit in the United States because they already were involved in other fitness pursuits right? Like there's just a ton of yoga teachers out there that, you know, are were aerobics teachers before and, you know, Pilates instructors and, and all of this, or, or athletes who, um, you know, turn to yoga because they, uh, they found some relief from tight muscles perhaps, or a way to enhance their other athletic pursuits. But the reality is that literally anyone who can breathe can do yoga. And that means anyone who's alive, right? <laughs> like, like you, you don't have to have a certain body in order to um, do a yoga practice. And the idea that good teaching somehow comes from physical perfection or close to it is also absurd when you start to break it down. 
A good teacher is one who makes lessons relatable. And, you know, that's going to vary from person to person or population to population, of course. Um, so I, I'm not the right yoga teacher for everyone. I am the right yoga teacher for a lot of people, in part because I know how to make yoga accessible for a variety of bodies. Um, and, and I also am dedicated to the idea that, uh, that, that people should feel joy and learn to inhabit their bodies uh, more than the culture asks of us. And uh, so, so I think that the way that people see my body in a yoga class, um, a lot of people, especially if I substitute teach for somebody else's class, or I happen to teach in a gym, um, I've definitely experienced people dismiss my body as capable. Uh, but because I teach regular ongoing classes, a lot of the people who come to my classes um, and the people who attend the yoga is for every body retreats that I offer, um, those people are looking at my body as um, an expression of a practice that is not normally seen. They're grateful, right? They're grateful that I am adding my body to the diversity of yoga practitioners. Um, they're grateful that I am offering 30 years of experience as a yoga practitioner, 20 years of teaching experience. They're grateful for those things. And the, the way that my body looks is, you know, a distant second um, in terms of what's important there. So in a very different essay, you write about how you want to be John Travolta, not his characters, as you clarified, but Travolta himself. Can you tell me why? <laughs> you know, I don't think that I, I don't think I was saying I wanted to be John Travolta. <laughs> I was saying I became him. Um, okay. Okay. I, and I don't think that there was volition involved in that. <laughs> I think. Um, you know, the story is about, uh, how I became Travolta across a range of characters starting in my early adolescence. And the way that I became Travolta was because in my friend group, my little pre-adolescent friend group, um, you know, I think a lot of kids probably do this and maybe girls in particular, we were singing the songs and acting out the, um, you know, the, the films and the, the TV shows, we were acting out these things that we saw in our culture. And the fact is, if there is a movie like Grease, for instance, that comes out and you've got the male lead is John Travolta and the female lead was Olivia Newton-John and she's slender and blonde and, you know, all of that. Uh, if there's four of us that are, you know... Um, going to act out a scene from Greece and I'm the only fat one, there is no way I end up being Olivia Newton-John. There's no way. So I became Travolta by default. I became, and, and, and you're right. The, 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 the essay focuses on Travolta, not just the character from Greece, because he was a popular actor throughout that whole period of my adolescence and, you know, from Vinnie Barbarino and Welcome Back, Cotter, where he's this kind of, you know, ridiculous, like, like that character has a ridiculous swagger, you know, that we, um, 
you know, we imitated those kind of TV characters, but I was not the female lead. The female lead is someone who is um, credibly attractive. And as a fat girl, you don't get to be credibly attractive. Now, I hope that this is changing. And my goodness, the pop star Lizzo is, you know, is doing a great cultural service right now in, um, you know, being the kind of booty shaken, brazen, um, sex loving, uh, public character, right. Who is an athlete and a musician and scantily clad. And, you know, so I, I really could see, you know, if little 10 to 12 year old me were alive now, she'd be dancing around and belting it out to Lizzo songs. But at the time I became John Travolta. Right. And I continued to identify with him through um, Saturday Night Fever, through Grease, through uh, Urban Cowboy. You know, by the time he was in Pulp Fiction, I was an adult, of course. But, he, you know, by then he was already my guy. <laughs> so I think I identified with him then, too. You reminded me of conversations among friends when I lived in New York about which of us was Carrie, Samantha, Miranda, you know, which of us is which. Yeah. And because I was Carrie, I thought, well, obviously I get to be Carrie. And they all looked at me and I re- had this moment of clarity where I realized, oh, no, 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 I'm Miranda. Like, obvi- like it was obvious to them. Oh, no, no, you're not a credible Carrie. You are clearly a Miranda. And I've decided to embrace my Miranda. So yes. interesting, right? And I, how many women have had that conversation? Right. And the way that we take Hollywood or uh, television roles and divvy them up in our actual lives, even if it's not literal. Right. Um, It's profound. It's profound. The effect that uh, media culture has on us. Absolutely. So you also write that you have been big all of your life, but that aging and disability are new experiences for you. So I'm wondering, how have those newer identities shaped your sense of yourself and your understanding of our social world? Oh, look, you know, it's a constant adventure, isn't it? Life in the body. What's the alternative? I mean, the the fact is, like, I really did think, I really did think, like, all through my 30s, my 40s, I'm like, yeah, I I got this body acceptance thing down, right? I'm used to this body. I love this body. And then stuff started to sag in different ways. And then when I became more arthritic and I started to limp, oh, oh, those were game changers, right? And all of a sudden, I was emotionally back in a place of challenge. And, uh, you know, it's not insurmountable, right? I have a strong foundation for body acceptance, body positivity, and also a strong structure for understanding what these things mean socially. So it's not like I'm just feeling like uh, something went wrong with my body positivity. I, I understand what's happening. This this is part of why I think that um, books like this one, uh, I mean, I hope that I've made an important contribution because I think we need more ways to remind ourselves and others that the way we think about bodies and the way we live in our own bodies is malleable. It's completely changeable and important to continue investigating because I've had to, you know, I've had to get used to the way things are saggy a little bit differently, right? The way that my skin is changing as I age. I still 
love this body. I still love that this body has supported me and continues to support me in the way that it does. And I still, you know, am able to feel privilege in my appearance sometimes, less so than when I was 30. But that's the conversation we're in now, right? At my age, women over 50, definitely over 60 or 70, feel increasingly erased. So, uh, you know, I don't feel that that erasure has happened to me yet, but I'm definitely aware that culturally it exists and uh, it's coming. And I'm feeling, um, uh, you know, the challenges of particularly the limp, you know, that the the limp um, really made me understand how much of my own personal credibility I was getting from my athleticism. And, uh, and it changes the way people look at you, right? That the, the idea being that, Oh, you're, you have that limp because you're fat and you're, uh, you're out of shape, even though obviously nobody knows what a limp comes from, right? Somebody, somebody who looks like an athlete who has a limp, maybe didn't get that running a marathon. Maybe they got it because they got drunk and fell off a curb, right? So uh, you don't know, but these are immediate assumptions we make about bodies. And um, I'm, I'm just grateful to keep being alive and learning more about this body as it goes. Right. As you say, it's better than the alternative. <laughs> now, you describe a dinner where a neighbor's young child called you fat and the other adults at the table froze at this sort of awkward silence. And I want to quote your response to the boy Um, in part because I have quoted it so many times already. I'm the mother of a young child. I know a lot of mothers and aunts and neighbors of young children. And I just thought you said so well what many of us endeavor to find the right words to say to children, and not just about fat, but about other kinds of identities and appearances. Um, So you asked this young boy, you know, loudly enough for the rest of the table to hear, hey, Taylor, did you call me fat? I don't think there's anything wrong with being called fat because it's not bad to be fat. But you know what? Some people think that's an insult word. So maybe you shouldn't go calling someone fat. Better wait until you hear people call themselves fat. Then you know they're okay with it. And then you can use that word too. Otherwise, you might hurt someone's feelings. You're not hurting my feelings though. Fat is just one of the ways bodies can be. So what? And so why, I ask myself, why does this simple, straightforward statement feel so revolutionary? I, I would like that simple, straightforward statement to feel to feel less revolutionary. And I think, um, you know, I, I think this is a good essay to talk about with regard to a question you asked me earlier. I think something about, you know, what what, what do I want the aim of this? You know, what, what's the why did I write this book? <laughs> right. Or how do I see um, the social change part? Uh, this is it. This, this is it. And the fact that those simple, straightforward statements feel revolutionary is the thing that I would like to change. And I would like for people to realize that in every social interaction, um, we have power. We have power as social creators. And it doesn't happen accidentally because we have been trained out of that power. We can get it back, though, pretty easily. So here's the thing. We rarely have the right thing to say when we're surprised or caught off guard or ashamed or fearful or compromised, right? It's hard to have the right comeback. And a lot of people have that experience of like, 
God, you know, two hours later, I know what I should have said. Well, the fact is that if if somebody is listening to this right now, unless it's like 11 p.m. at night, before the day is over, you're going to hear some negative message about fat people, right? Like it is that ubiquitous in our culture that it's astonishing that we don't actually think these things through. So I already know that I'm going to hear some kind of comment from somebody sometime about being fat. And so I have thought through, well, what do I want to say about that? Right. This is my body. And it's the, you know, it's, it's, it's important for me to think about the stuff that affects me. Right. So what do I want to say? The same is true with race. You know, if a child said something about somebody's race and everybody recoiled in silent horror, I would know what to say then too, because I've thought about it. I've thought about these things. And that's literally all we have to do. All we have to do is think about what do I really feel and believe about this topic? And what would I like to convey? And then I think part of the reason I included this story is because it was a child. And I think it is helpful to think about what do I believe and what would I like to say? And what is the language I could use that would be simple enough for a child to understand? Hey, I don't think it's bad to be fat. That's the problem here is people are walking around thinking that's bad. And, you know, so that's why it's an insult word. And I don't want to insult anybody. Uh, I don't think you do either. So let's maybe not talk like that. I I do the same thing I have to say if it's, you know, a group of women that I happen to be um, having lunch with and the conversation, as it often does, turns to uh, what we should or shouldn't eat and what some diet somebody's on or, you know, whether or not somebody's cheating or has is, is, uh, you know, being bad by ordering dessert. You know, look, I don't need to be a feminist killjoy in every situation, but I often will just say something simple like, oh, I don't think there's any moral superiority to ordering one thing over the other, actually. Right? <laughs> like, like, it's fine to just assert your own thoughtful ideas about appearance and hierarchy throughout your everyday life. And that's how we create culture. We forget we're doing it, right? We forget we're doing it, creating culture. Literally, when we go to a yoga class or when we're talking to somebody in a supermarket or when we're having dinner at a neighbor's house and their kid says some goofy stuff, like we forget that we are actually creating culture in all of those moments. Well, and as you write, your aim in telling your own personal stories is, is to teach people that stories can change and that people can make and share their own new stories when they need, right? That they're not stuck in or subject to other people's stories or old stories or stories that don't fit them anymore that they don't like or never liked. And I wondered if um, sort of just to bring us back around, if you could speak a bit more about the power of stories as you see it. Yeah. So first of all, there's the kind of storytelling that I do on stage and that I do in this kind of book, right? That's formal storytelling. But when I'm talking about storytelling in everyday life, I'm talking about the way we make sense of life and talk about it, right? The way that you recount a conversation you had with a coworker earlier in the day, that's a story. Um, The way that we 
do that rehearsed narrative thing about like, oh, I think I'm going to be bad and order dessert. That's a story. Um, so, so, you know, humans make meaning out of their lives by telling stories and, um, and also by looking at how other people witness those stories, right? This is how we learn as children. You know, you blurt something out and then you go, oh, what happens now? And it's how we continue to learn through our lives, though we tend to forget that it's happening. So, um, so this is, yeah, this, this is what I'm interested in, is that if we can come back to the idea that the way that we talk, the way that we act, the way that we look at one another, have powerful meaning and, um, you know, influence the tra- the literal trajectory of the culture, right? Because listen, you don't end up with social and public policies accidentally. They are expressions of um, cultural fears and goals and shame and aims. Um, so, I, I really do think about storytelling and the way that we story our lives as being critical to our shared experience. Oh, oh thank you for that. I, you know, I really enjoyed reading your book and it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Um, so before we wrap up and I let you go, what um, do you think your next project will be? Well, I've enjoyed talking to you too. I really like these questions and you've pulled out some interesting things. I actually have another book coming out with AK press next year. Um, It's tentatively titled damaged like me. And it is also personal essays with a sociological perspective um, that are looking more critically at how um, people who have been affected by Uh, social stigma by negative experiences culturally are often seen as being biased about those topics, right? Like, like for instance, when Supreme court justice Sotomayor was confirmed, there were lots of people who were like, well, she's a, she's, she's a Latina woman. She can't possibly be, (laughs) she can't possibly be neutral about issues related to women or race as if there is some kind of neutrality uh, in white maleness. And I think that we need to really start looking at the idea that um, the people that we have long considered neutral are actually less qualified and literally uninformed about the way the culture functions about the way that social hierarchy works. They are literally less qualified for those jobs. And, uh, and that we need to stop this nonsense about uh, the idea that, yeah, if you have uh, experienced childhood trauma, or if you, um, you know, were a refugee, or if you have been sexually harassed or raped, that somehow you are damaged and cannot think clearly about those experiences. Um, I don't like the idea that we throw away people who are actually expert um, on the kinds of topics. Now, that's not to say that people don't have, you know, their healing to do and don't have um, a need for 
community and reflection and broader learning. Of course, we all do. But for goodness sakes, people who are affected by these issues are more likely to seek out those things than people who have never experienced them at all. So this is another essay collection that is highly intersectional and highly personal. And a lot of the stories um, involve the same kinds of intersections as this book, but also with that broader cultural um, focus of what it means to be damaged. (laughs) Well, I will keep an eye out for that book and I look forward to reading it. Um, Thank you again for taking the time to um, talk with me and our listeners today. Oh, you are so welcome. I'm Carrie Lane, a host of New Books in American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. You've been listening to my interview with Kimberly Dark, author of Fat, Pretty, and Soon to be Old, a makeover for self and society.